Very good morning to all of you. I'm so glad you're here with us in service, joining us uh, for our uh, worship service at Church of the Good Shepherd. Um, I am continuing our sort of series. Can I get the house lights off? <laughs> yeah, thanks. I like to see people's faces. <laughs> uh, the, the series in the book of Romans, sort of a series because we're not following it all the way through, but you are, I hope, getting a flavor for Paul's uh, teaching to the Roman church. As you remember, if you have been following the series, Paul wrote this letter because he was planning to make a trip from Jerusalem to Spain. And Rome would have been one of the way stops. He had not visited the church in Rome as yet, although he'd been all over uh, the Roman Empire mostly. Uh, and he intended to uh, uh, pay a visit to Rome. And so this letter was by way of introduction, which is why it's such a long letter. Most of the other letters of Paul uh, written to churches he already knows. Uh, so this was his introductory letter, and basically he was laying out uh, his understanding of the gospel and the message which he brings. That's why, you know, the key verse really for the whole of Romans is this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. And you realize, you know, that um, as he writes... He's writing to two audiences within the Roman church. One part of the church was made up of people who were of Jewish ancestry and background and become believers in Jesus, and uh, they were part of the church. But there were also another part that were Gentile. He uses the term Greek here, but really means those who are non-Jews. And um, the problem in the church, as we read it, at least we are reading into it, he doesn't address it directly, is that there were questions between the two factions. You know, there's just an inevitability in any sort of human organization. You know, people sometimes tend to divide themselves into us versus them. And in the church in Rome, it wasn't all that different. And unfortunately, it was over uh, this background, the Jewish believers versus the Gentile believers. And uh, he, he sums it up. He says then in verse 17 of Romans 1, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This is the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so this is the context in which we are reading this letter. Uh, we didn't quite follow through uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11, although Kafun did a good job um, um, working through parts of 10 last week. But if you actually sit down and you read through the book of Romans, you realize that in verses 9 through 11, Paul addresses the issue of the Jewish uh, uh, believers, but more specifically, the Jewish non-believers. You know, of course, that Jesus uh, was born into a Jewish home, raised, and we can see from the account in the gospel, his primary call was to the house of Israel. He only ministered amongst uh, um, um, uh, the Jews. But um, what had happened is not all the Jews accepted him. We know this for a fact, right? From readings in the Gospels. But even post-Gospel, uh, um, uh, if you read through the book of Acts, you see time and time again, Paul faced a lot of opposition from uh, the Jewish uh, believers, uh, not the believers, but the non-believers, or those who rejected the Gospel. And so Paul you know, in chapter 9, picks this up and he uh, points out to the church in Rome, 
I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have, a great, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, my, my relatives in that sense, according to the flesh, i.e. those of the Jewish ancestry, those who are ethnically Hebrews or Israelites. Uh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, which is entirely true, you know. Uh, the whole understanding of, of, of Christianity has its roots in, in Judaism. And the Old Testament was, is the Hebrew Bible, in that sense. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, uh, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, I'm not going to go through his entire argument through chapter 9 and even this passage. But I'm uh, sharing this with you to put into context this uh, um, verses we are looking at in, in chapter 11. Because it is in this context that in verse 11... He picks it up and he says this, I asked then, has God rejected his people? Because, you know, apparently the Jews had turned their back upon Christ. They turned their back on the gospel. Paul's answer is this, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then he goes on to explain why he believes that's not the case. And I'm not here to talk about this uh, Jewish-Gentile divide, but I want to draw lessons because he sums up in the chapter really his whole approach to this and his understanding of this. Why has God not rejected his people? And it's important that as Christians we understand that, you know, that God still has a place in his heart for them. Because you see in verse 29, Paul says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, it, 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 he doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. You know, there's no shadow of turning in him. The Bible tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God is constant. Great is his faithfulness. Then he points out in verse 30, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Paul's whole argument in uh, 9, 10, and 11 is that, you know, it is God's grace that uh, has allowed them to become so uh, hardened towards the gospel because of that reason, the gospel broke out of its confines of the Jewish nation, right? Because as Paul, you know, if you uh, trace Paul's missionary journeys, he always started in synagogues. And when the synagogues turned their back on him, he then preached to the rest of the city. And it was in that way the gospel began to spread because of the rejection from the Jewish people. Otherwise, you know, Christianity would have remained uh, sort of quite insular and, and probably ethnically bound. Do you know today that the church is found in almost every nation on the earth? That there are Christians of all uh, um, um, uh, races and all nationalities? 
that you will find the presence of the church all over the place, largely because in God's uh, uh, divine plan, His intention is not to confine it to just the Jewish race. I mean, He had His own reason, and I'm not going to get into that because that's not uh, uh, in view in this passage. But that ultimately, you know, what we see in this is that what Paul is also pointing out is that just because you're disobedient doesn't mean you don't receive mercy from God. And, you know, it gets to the heart of the gospel. Because, you see, human religion often thinks in terms of this for that. Very transactional, cause and effect. If you do this, that is going to happen to you. Right? That's always the, the way of thinking. Yesterday, I did a, a session with the Saturday service where you can ask pastor anything. <laughs> and someone asked the question, you know, is it wrong to not uh, uh, tithe regularly? I say, what do you mean by that question? <laughs> and the, the, the thinking behind that is, oh, if I don't tithe, God's going to strike me, you know, or, or, or punish me, or somehow other things are going to go wrong. That's the this for that thinking. I pointed out, I might as well tell you because you're all curious, right? I pointed out the purpose of tithing is to teach us that everything we have comes from God. We don't give Him 10%. God gives us 90%, you know, and He just keeps the 10% for Himself. That's all the principle of tithing is. It's just to indicate, you know, who owns it all. So, is it right for you to not tithe? (laughs) Think about it. Are you acknowledging where everything you have comes from? That's the tithe. But that's uh, another thing altogether. I don't want to get sidetracked, which I have. Sorry. <laughs> but it's this uh, cause and effect thinking that Paul is trying to attack. And then he carries on. Then in verse 32, he says this, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Which is a very puzzling verse. But if you read it in the context of the whole book of Romans, it actually echoes what he says in Romans 3.23, where he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This principle that guides us in the gospel is that all have sinned. You've heard me say this before. You've heard people say it all the time. You know, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. No one deserves redemption. None of us. The fact that we are redeemed is entirely a gift from God. And understanding this is actually the key to being gracious towards yourself and gracious towards others. Because you, we can sometimes run ourselves down and and, and, and become very harsh, sometimes judging ourselves, but especially in judging others. There was an American uh, retired general, Peter Pace, who used to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's like our chief of defense force equivalent in the U.S. He said this, you should always tell the truth as you know it. And you should understand that there is a whole lot that you don't know. <laughs> Implying the fact that, you know, Oftentimes, we jump to conclusions about people and we may judge them harshly, but oftentimes, there's a whole other picture that we may not have uh, understanding of. And, and the idea being, you know, what Paul was addressing is 
as the Gentile church, don't judge the Jewish uh, people who have rejected, seemingly rejected Christ. His whole argument in chapter 11 is that the Lord has not forgotten His promise to them. And that at the right time, He will redeem them as well. And this is important. Why? Because it shows that God's mercy is beyond deserving. It's got nothing to do with whether we deserve His mercy or not. Which means, in that sense, no one is beyond God's ability to reach. Have you been praying for someone all your life and you, they seem still very hardened towards the gospel? Keep faith in God. That God has not abandoned them. There was a question also yesterday asking about what about backsliders? You know, what should we do? What, you know, same thing. That the Lord has not abandoned them. Because I know we know people who used to sit in our midst who maybe have lost their way through the years. Don't give up hope. The Lord has not abandoned those whom He has called. Which then brings me to this whole uh, um, um, account of the Canaanite woman because I think there are lessons in there as well which sort of reinforce this. It's found from Matthew 15, 21 to 28, which is actually the lectionary reading, but then oftentimes in the lectionary they put brackets and they give you the option of uh, reading the verses before. So I, that's why I elected to read the lo longer passage, because it gives us context to this story. You know the story, of course, which was just read. This Canaanite woman came because the daughter was uh, um, uh, oppressed by a demon and was pleading to Jesus, please heal her. And Jesus, it says in verse 30, 23, which seems so uncharacteristic of him, he did not answer her word. Basically, he ignored her. He bohewed her. <laughs> you know, wasn't paying her any attention. But it was so bad that the disciples couldn't take it anymore. And in a sense, the disciples betrayed their um, prejudice. And, and understand, in the uh, Jewish mind, they were um, taught from a very young age, you know, to have nothing to do with foreigners. And that foreigners were not deserving of their... Uh, attention, and they, they, they were certainly not a part of the people of God. That was their understanding. Even though in the Old Testament there are signs that they were meant to be a light to the nations, okay? They hadn't really understood that because culturally, you know, the prejudices were baked into their culture. And uh, it, you see it because it comes out and says, Lord, send her away. You know, she's a nuisance, basically. And Jesus then turns to her and he, she says to her, I've been called to the house of Israel, not to those who are outside. But this is her, uh, uh, her reply. Well, her reply was, you know, even the, uh, uh, or he said to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Stunning, right? This doesn't sound like the Jesus who is compassionate in heart. He's basically saying, you're a dog. That's the implication here. It seems like. What was he saying? You know, the woman didn't give up. She persisted and she said the words which we uh, uh, use in our communion service. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, this vignette, if we take it out of its context, sounds really, really harsh. And we misunderstand, you know, what was Jesus getting at? 
But I read the larger passage because if you read earlier in uh, um, uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, you see the occasion in which all of these uh, sayings and teachings of Jesus took place. In verse 1, it says, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Basically, the uh, um, religious leaders of the day were criticizing Jesus and said, Look, your disciples don't deserve to be disciples. They don't even follow the law. Now, this is not about hygiene, okay? It's not about... Uh, fighting against infection and COVID. <laughs> That's a different thing altogether. This is about ritual washing. This is about ritual cleanliness, about fulfilling what their understanding of the law was. And it's, they, the authorities were saying, look, your disciples don't deserve to be disciples. But the subtext, you don't deserve to be a teacher because you can't even teach them correctly. And so that's what is going on here. And why Jesus had to correct this kind of thinking, he said, the problem is not what goes into you that corrupts you. The problem is what is within you. That what comes from within is what defiles a person that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that none of us are deserving. What Jesus said to the woman is true, not just of her, it's true of us. But she persisted and she held fast and she continued to say, Lord, help me. And that's why Jesus commended her and said, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. You see, this for that thinking, which you see in uh, the divide between the Jewish and the Gentile believers, which you see here in, in, in this passage in Matthew, plagues all of us. You know, we are reminded in our communion service that we do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness. See, when we stand in judgment of others, very often it's because we trust in our own righteousness. Therefore, we can look down at others and we say, oh, why don't you come up to my level? Why is it you're not as good as I am? The subtext. Of course, we're too polite or we, are, we, we know well enough not to say it out loud. But that's what we carry in our hearts. Let me illustrate with a, sort of an out there sort of a, 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 a way to address this question of this for that thinking. It's from this book, which I uh, read years ago, which I was just reminded as I was reading this. It's uh, by a, a lady named Dorothy Martin, who has since passed away. She's a psychotherapist for children, but a very fine Christian. And this is actually a Christian uh, publisher that published the book. I can't remember. I think it's Erdman's or something like that. Beyond Deserving, Children, Parents, and Responsibility Revisited. And as you start in it, because she's a psychotherapist, you know, she uses a lot of uh, academic and psychological concepts to speak to it. But she's actually addressing a deeper issue. Her expertise is in dealing with uh, problem kids. Kids who largely misbehave and, you know, they then are brought to her and have to deal with her. And she... You know, it's, it's an intriguing title. Right in the outset, in her introduction, she explains what she means by beyond deserving. 
She says, I have seen the superior potency of an approach to a misbehaving child. She says misbehaving child because to her, she unpacks what is the root of the misbehavior. That the child has no element of uh, 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 an approach that has no element of the this for that implied in it. Instead, parental love and by extension mentoring love is authentic and effectual in proportion to the degree that it transcends the commonly assumed principle of circular exchange. That is to say, this for that. All true love is a stranger to that kind of thinking. What she's basically saying in a very academic sort of way is that, you know, we tend to love conditionally. You know, and it, it may be ex- uh, exaggerated in our meritocratic society of Singapore. But don't you find yourself sometimes saying to the kid, well, if you bring back such and such a grade, you will get such and such a thing. And the implication is, if you do well in school, I will love you. If you don't do well in school, then, you know, my love is withheld. Now, that's not our intention, but that's a subtext which we often project. And is it any wonder that, you know, most of us tend to operate in this this for that climate? And what you're saying, you see, because oftentimes you try and deal with a misbehaving child, you're right, you carrot and the stick. <laughs> you, you, you try and uh, force the issue with them. And what she's saying is, no, unconditional love is the secret to getting through to them. Because she's found that in her therapy. But this, later on, she deals with it and you begin to understand why she believes that this is the way to get through. Understanding what it is like to be under siege, the good parent as well as the good mentor intervenes powerfully. Why? Because she, she points out that these children, oftentimes, you know, the, this for that thinking, people tend to dismiss it because they say, oh, you become very permissive. Does that mean you just allow the kids to do anything? I mean, unconditional love. Just love them through it. No, she says, a good parent doesn't wash their hands off hurtful behavior or just abandon a child to their impulses. But what happens is a a, a parent who knows this recognizes that this out-of-control child is actually acting on a destructive impulse and there's a force within that they have really no control over. And so in that context, she says this, as a good parent or good mentor, you realize that the child is under siege and you intervene powerfully, unconditionally on the side of what is good for the child by standing with the child instead of standing over against him in judgment. That you stand with them and you, you know, uh, uh, assure them that you are with them and that you are on their side. And she points out, such a stance is in fact derived from the way that God enters into human suffering with mercy. Moving first with grace, not waiting for bad behavior to change. And with patience, that is to say, sustaining and accompanying the human being without coercion. She draws her methodology from looking at how God is father to us that we have received mercy when we didn't deserve mercy at all. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the message of the gospel, isn't it? The heart of the gospel is encapsulated in that famous verse we all have memorized, I'm sure all of you know by heart. So let's say it together, John 3.16, right? What? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son 
that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know what 1 John 3.16 says? The epistle of John says this, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That we need to respond in the same way that Jesus demonstrated God's love to us. That is the secret to bringing about transformation in the world. You know, that as we have received love, we are to show love. He goes on to say, you know, make sure you bless them. If they're in need, meet their need. Because that's a demonstration of God's love that abides in you. Little children, he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That we are to love as we've been loved. We are to forgive as we've been forgiven. We are to give mercy as we have received mercy. I don't know, it's a challenging word for us, but if we stop and we think about it honestly, (laughs) it's also a word that cuts to the heart. Because I know I've not always been that kind of father. I certainly know I've not been that kind of friend or spouse or pastor or employer or a boss that I've fallen far short, which is why then Paul, uh, um, John goes on to say, but if this we know that we are of the truth and we are sure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. That the Lord stands with us and you know, the psalmist tells us he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. That ultimately, you know, if you find you fall short That's the very reason we come to this table. That God loves us despite the fact that we have not lived out the gospel as we ought to. That I, it's often a clue for me that, you know, when I fall short, it tells me I haven't really fully understood the gospel for me. I understand it intellectually, but, you know, it hasn't sunk deep into my heart. So the solution is to apply the gospel to my life again. To recognize God's great love for me unconditionally poured out that I am a recipient of mercy from first to last. And when I'm bathed in that grace, that gives me the impetus, the motivation to extend that grace to others. This message applies not to us just as parents, which, you know, I use a parental example. I shouldn't have used it with the group yesterday because hardly any of them are parents. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it stands true. But it also stands true in all our relationships. Maybe it's the reverse, as a child to your parent or to a relative or sibling or an aunt, or an uncle, or possibly in your social sphere, or in the workplace? Are there people you struggle with and you, you know, label us versus them, and you are tempted to sweep aside and just dismiss out of hand? If you've been a recipient of God's mercy and God's grace, be a channel of that mercy and that grace to them as well. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.
gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for deserve. But as your character and your love has demonstrated, that even when we were far from you, you did not wait for us to draw near to you. You came to us. And Lord, may that understanding build a deep gratitude in our hearts. An outpouring of love in our hearts that will result in our loving others, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Help the ways in which we fall short of your good news. Help us, Lord, to soak ourselves in the gospel so that we, in turn, become channels of the gospel to others. Help us, Lord, not to be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people say, Amen.